I'm Jonathan Bastian, this week on KCRW's Life Examined. History is rife with tales of men accidentally mistaken for gods, from ancient kings to new world explorers. But why do we still believe that deities can inhabit the human form? There is this narrative that the modern world killed God. Actually, the modern world keeps creating new ones. You can find him on the street because I think we all kind of need this sense of the immortal in order to live. And later, what if deification doesn't happen outside of us, but within? We have a particular model of what it means to be a human, or an experience of what it means to be a human, in which one is convinced that one has a divine aspect. One might even have a profound experience of it. I think this is actually a fairly common human experience. Stories of godliness, internal divine doubles, and modern world deities. That's coming up on Life Examined. I'm Jonathan Bastian. Egyptian pharaohs, the ancient kings of Egypt, were believed to be divine, sent to earth by the gods to maintain earthly order. And Shintoists once believed that the emperors of Japan were divine too. History, both ancient and modern, is filled with stories of apotheosis, mortals who are raised to a godlike status, and often, unwittingly, the Ethiopian Emperor Haile Selassie and even former President Donald Trump, for example. So what makes us humans believe in and worship another human? Are we predisposed to believe in godlike beings? And what makes a human godlike? Writer Anna Della Subin explores the history of the idea of apotheosis, or human deities, in her latest book called Accidental Gods, on men unwittingly turned divine. Most notably, many of the gods she writes about are white men. We'll hear more about that later. Explorers, sailors, or missionaries believed to be sent from heaven. Anna Della Subin studied the history of religion at Harvard Divinity School, and she also writes widely on topics concerning the Middle East and its diasporas. Anadella Subin, welcome to Life Examined. It's great to be here. Thanks so much for having me on the show. So I want to jump into one of the most interesting characters in your book. This is Haile Selassie, the former emperor of Ethiopia. And I know that this was an important character for you in terms of thinking about ideas of deification and, and what a fascinating process that is. So let's start with him. Who was he and why is he so important in this book? Yeah, so in 1930, Haile Selassie was crowned emperor of Ethiopia in this lavish coronation ceremony. And he invited all of the powers of the earth to be present there um, in Addis Ababa, partially because he was in the midst of this kind of secession drama um, with another princely noble. And so he was kind of trying to create a kind of you know, a greater legitimacy for himself. And so all of these emissaries from across the earth descended for this event. And it was covered in National Geographic. And actually, the American Consul General wrote about it for the magazine. And his account just cast it in these amazing biblical tones. He kind of wrote about the you know, the robes that Haile Selassie and his empress were draped in and the biblical ceremony and the anointing with oils and, and National Geographic printed these amazing color photographs. And so he kind of created this sort of mythical portrait of the event. And so on the other side of the world, on the island of Jamaica, people learned about the coronation of this African king. Um... And one of the ways they heard about it was they saw this issue of National Geographic. And it, you know, it could only seem biblical. Um, so several different people had the same idea all at once that God was alive on earth right now. And he was a black man. And these were people who are living on an island that was still under British colonial rule and were facing the kind of daily oppression of that. So it was a deeply powerful idea and it quickly caught on fire. Um, but it was deeply paradoxical. You know, Haile Selassie himself didn't actually consider himself black. Um, he thought that he was Semitic. And when and the new religion started calling itself Rastafari, um, which Rastafari uh, was Haile Selassie's name before he took on his um, his name his his name as emperor, which was Haile Haile Selassie. Um, 
But after he took on that new name, he forbid anyone from calling him Rastafari because uh, he had become something more powerful. But nevertheless, the name persisted uh, as the name of a new religion. And so over the next few decades, it amassed over a million Rastafari followers, and it became this deeply empowering religion of, of Black power. And, you know, as, as the island of Jamaica gained its liberation from British colonialism, a new generation of politicians drew upon it, drew upon Rastafari ideas and idioms to kind of move the country in the direction of democratic socialism. And so you have this paradox that an autocrat on one side of the earth could become this kind of democratizing power for good in many ways on the other side of the earth without ever agreeing to it or <laughs> consenting to it. Um, and he didn't even know that he was being worshiped as a god uh, for, you know, maybe 20 years or so. Um, and when he did find out, he was very deeply dismayed um, because he was he was very deeply Christian himself. Um, and he sent missionaries to Jamaica to try and convert the Rastafari followers to his own God. Um, but I guess what drew me into the story, and this was really how my book project began, was just in thinking about all of the paradoxes. Um, I kind of became obsessed with this idea that a man on one side of the earth could become God on the other without consenting yeah. to it. <laughs> and so I, I actually traveled to Addis Ababa and I ended up in Haile Selassie's old bedroom and I was admiring his bathroom fixtures uh, <laughs> in his former palace. And I saw the bullet hole in his mirror um, from an attempted coup against him and I just you know was captivated by by the contrast between his humanness and his divinity. Yeah, what an unbelievable story. I mean, just the idea that this small island of Jamaica via a US magazine is able to find these images of Haile Selassie and then turn him into a god. And it makes me think of how there are certain cultures or countries or people or just small groups that are craving some kind of deity or God, even if they have to create one. It's as if there's this kind of human impulse that uh, if this thing, this greater entity is missing, then we need to search for one, even if that means going to the other side of the earth. I take it those were some of the ideas you were interested in when you were writing this book. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> that's, you know, that's the heart of, of my book is that what I'm trying to show is that we all have these impulses. We, we're all seeking something transcendent around us. And, you know, like every, uh, the book spans nearly every continent. Um, and time and time again, we come up against this kind of longing, longing, you know, for a way to imagine an alternative future. Um, like, there's this narrative that goes that the modern world killed God, you know, as Nisha famously said. Um, but what I'm arguing in the book is that actually, actually the modern world keeps creating new ones. God himself has multiplied. And so it is that, you know, you can, you can find him on the street. The accidental God has kind of become this, this deeply ubiquitous figure. Um, because I think we all kind of need this sense of the immortal in order to live. So if we go back even before Haile Selassie and we begin to think of gods, maybe in the Greek sense, in antiquity, back in Athens, how do you think the Greeks would have understood the gods? Yeah, so in the ancient world, there wasn't such a deep chasm between man and gods, you know. We, today, many would have a, a kind of possibly Christian sense that, like, God is completely different from man and, and there's no way we could ever be like him or her. But in the ancient world, you know, deification was actually a ritual of statecraft. Um, so Roman emperors were constantly becoming gods. Um, and gods were, you know, mating with humans uh, in myth 
and you can kind of imagine the scene of this kind of closeness of heaven and earth. But then as Christian orthodoxy came to take shape, um, this, you know, the, the idea that a man might become a god just became ridiculous and blasphemous. Um, and it was, you know, Christianity, which was the religion of the powers that sought to colonize the earth in the modern age. Um, and so we became more and more distant from these ideas of deification and apotheosis. And so, you know, seeing it as blasphemous or ridiculous, we think an unexpected apotheosis could only happen among like pre-modern peoples or on some, you know, isolated island um, or some, you know, some kind of delusion. But actually what I'm trying to, to show is how these currents are still deeply all around us and with us today. You know, it's interesting. For example, we have in the book of Exodus 23, quote, you shall have no other gods before me. And we hear these stories of, of, you know, in Christian times of just trying to get rid of those pagan people who believe in these crazy other ideas of what a deity is. And I wonder how different life might have felt with a different notion of God, you know, one that was maybe more human, that could be found on the streets or in the trees or in the clouds. Uh, my sense is it would give you a, a very different texture of the world around you. Hmm. Yeah, it's funny that line you quote, that was actually one that Haile Selassie drew upon, that God is a jealous God and, you know, it's a, a kind of warning against against his own deification. Um, but yeah, you know, I... I, I have some experience of, of a different kind of world. And um, there's, there's one chapter in my book where I actually go on a road trip with a friend who was actually turned into a god once. And he, he, he's this 90-year-old poet and anthropologist, Nathaniel Tarn. Um, he's a really interesting figure. And he found himself hailed as a god in Guatemala in the 1950s um, and then again in the 1970s. Um, and I hadn't realized that he was once taken as a god until he wrote me an email out of the blue. Um, and so we went on a road trip together so that he could tell me his story and what it was like to be worshipped as a god. And he's, you know... He kind of it found it a bit bewildering and was very funny about it. But I, as I was listening to his story, I realized how taken I was by it, you know, how completely I understood it and how captivated I was, you know, just by him um, in that moment. And so it was kind of the experience of being in the presence of a divinity um, in just a, you know, kind of everyday casual way. Um, yeah. and I guess, yeah, what, what I'm also trying to capture is that it's not really about believing in, in these gods. Like, so, you know, there was a long, uh, quite a long review of my book in the New Yorker, which, you know, questioned whether I actually believed in my friend Nathaniel, but, but I'm not asking, you know, whether or not we should believe in these gods, uh, I find belief very tricky. I'm not even really ever sure what I myself believe at any moment. Um, but I'm interested in why these stories exist. You know, why are they so ubiquitous? And, and how have they shaped our modern world? One of the big ways they shaped the U.S. was through early explorers, whether it was Columbus or Captain Cook or, you know, reading about the Spanish conquistadors moving up through Central America can you talk a little bit about their encounters with Native peoples in the U.S.? Yeah, so, you know, the the alleged dawn of the modern world was when Columbus um, arrived at a new shore um, in 1492. And in his diary, he recorded that the people he encountered hailed him as a celestial being. Um, and that thousands of people were crowding around his ships, asking him to bring, bring them back up to heaven with them. And he keep he kept recording this this again and again. Um, 
And similarly, when Hernán Cortés led the Spanish conquest of Mexico, um, it was recorded that he was mistaken for this god Quetzalcoatl, who was a, an Aztec feathered serpent deity. Um, and that was why Moctezuma decided to hand over his empire to this small band of Spaniards um, because he thought that they were gods. And so this trope just keeps keeps reappearing. Um, so only a, a few years after Cortez, his second in command, Francisco Pizarro, is again mistaken as a god. Um, then we have Francis Drake um, landing in Northern California, who recounts that he too is also taken by the Miwok peoples to be a god. And so they, they say they just want to hand over their land to him um, because it's, it's the god returning. And so these myths, they're deeply foundational to the story of the conquest of the New World as it's been told. Um, and in my book, I'm tearing them apart, you know, <laughs> deeply investigating what was going on here. And what you find is that so often the word God kind of hangs on these mistranslations or misinterpretations. So in the case of Columbus, it's a word called Ture, which then gets um, interpreted as God, but can actually, you know, mean something sort of like exotic or strange. Um, in the case of the Spanish, um, it's this Nahuatl word teot, which could mean anything commanding, respect, or powerful. Um, and so these myths kind of hinge on the fact that like both sides can't can't understand what the other is saying, um, but they've become told and retold. They're in history books and school textbooks and it's become this trope that the natives of the New World hailed white explorers as gods. Um, and so what I'm looking at in my book is how, how this trope actually coalesced just at the moment when our modern notions of race were beginning to form. And so it actually played a role in, in you know, creating, like, they were being told and retold just as, the colonizers were shifting their identity from Christian to calling themselves white. And I argue that whiteness itself actually took on a divinity. And so I, I you know, I, I'm kind of tearing apart the myths that, that white explorers were hailed as gods as a way to kind of see, okay, how can we break down these sort of mythological foundations of white supremacist thought today? And do you get the sense that these explorers, that, that all of this had maybe a big impact on them, that they would return to Spain or wherever and say, look, they're, they're revering us. They think we're superior. They're bowing before us. And that this idea in and of itself uh, seems to me like a powerful one that could shift one's understanding of another culture or how it's being presented. So absolutely. So it's often it's not the explorers themselves, but it's their sailors, it's the missionaries who follow in their wake, who seize upon these stories. Because the fact that all of these unknown peoples in the New World uh, were hailing the Europeans as gods was used to show that, that their coming was providential, that it was God's will, and that the conquest of the New World was deeply legitimate enterprise. Um, and so they really use them, you know, as a justification for their presence in the new world. Mm. And they became in, you know, as missionaries were trying to convert peoples to Christianity, they used the tales of the apotheosis of explorers as kind of cautionary tales to teach, to teach the right, right and wrong doctrines and to teach that, like, the sacred was kind of this deeply pure white concept set apart from ideas of sin and, and filth. And do you find that these stories of apotheosis, do they tend to happen under certain circumstances, uh, times of change or upheaval? What did you find when you were researching? Yeah, so that's really the thread that connects 
all of the stories in my book is that they all seem to happen at moments of rupture or nationalist uprisings or wars, um, conflicts, you know, when people are facing facing just immense loss and they kind of re- reach for whatever is around them. Um, often you find the deification of conquerors and colonizers because it's a way for people to try to appropriate their power for themselves. Um, and so the majority of the stories do do happen at these kind of, you know, revolutionary moments. But but there are some examples, um, like in, I have an appendix in my book which tells the story of Raj Patel, uh, who some listeners may, may know well, but who's uh, an economist and a writer who's very active today. Um, and he found himself uh, taken as the messiah by um, followers of this British sect called Share International, and um, this happened a few years ago, and I believe it was like 2010, I think. Um, he said, so Raj Patel suddenly started receiving these emails out of the blue with subject, are you the one? Um, he re- remembered being in like a taxi and getting, getting all these messages on his phone. Um, and so, I, you know, the story ended with him, with the religious leader who had you know put this idea in people's heads uh having a meeting face to face with with Patel and they both decided it was all a mistake um but (laughs) that was that was kind of on the more quotidian spectrum of apotheosis and you could go even further with this you know people that believe that their sports team is divine in and of itself or lots of other irrational things that we decide to put a lot of belief into and just as you say the stories you present might sound crazy to us but there's examples of this stuff playing out in our daily lives all the time oh yes i think probably what i've been hearing most from readers is that the book really makes them think of Trump uh, and his followers and QAnon um, and these kind of currents of deification that America has seen um, over the past few years. In my book, I talk about this apotheosis of Trump that happened in India um, in a village outside of Hyderabad where this religion was created around Trump that was only ever the religion of one man. Uh, his name was Busa Krishna. Um, and even before Trump became president, he decided that Trump was God, um, that he was the final avatar of Vishnu. Um, and he constructed a Trump temple in his home um, and started doing Trump pujas or rituals and built uh, an enormous idol of the god. Um, you know, a lot of his friends and family thought it was ridiculous, but but he persisted in his worship. Um, and he, uh, the story had a very sad ending um, because when Trump contracted the coronavirus, uh, Krishna decided to go on a hunger strike um, until he recovered and then the day that Trump left the hospital um the man actually died um so it was a kind of you know very extreme form of religious devotion um and so I tell it in my book as a way you know I I didn't want to go too deeply into Trump uh in America because that could it could have taken over the entire book, but I invoke this religion of one um, around Trump as a way for readers to kind of make the connections themselves that like actually these sort of currents are happening closer to home and are all around us. Um, I think, you know, we've just, we've just passed the one year anniversary uh, of the January 6th riots on the Capitol. Um, and I think anyone who was watching that, uh, there was, you know, there was something more, something going on there that was kind of beyond the secular 
the only way we can really understand what happened is to look deeper at, you know, forces of deification, divinity, um, and the kind of search for the transcendent that often takes these kind of unlikely mythological forms. Yeah, and I wonder if this will continue to be a phenomenon as long as humans are around and as we continue to see the breakdown of traditional religious structures. Because I think there is sometimes this sense of loss or meaninglessness in the way we go about our culture, which can feel very secular to some. And then when there are these threads to grab or these things to believe in, we tend to want to go there. Do you think that's true? Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, more and more people are kind of, you know, looking for something beyond like the strict traditions that they were raised in. Um, Just, you know, as the world is changing too, people look for, you know, even just like as technology changes, the internet becomes a new way of doing theology. Um, And so, you know, more and more, I, I think we'll only see more interesting apotheoses, although I'm not sure anyone is going to worship Biden, but we'll see. <laughs> not yet, not yet. <laughs> but we'll see. Well, as we start to wrap this conversation up, I, I wonder, were there any female stories of deification? I mean, do women feature in this story at all? Or is this just another sad reminder of just the patriarchal nature of the world we live in? Yeah, so, you know, when I started this book project, I really thought I was going to find more female characters. Um, there's this story I love um, about uh, this group of utopian industrialists in France called the St. Simonians. Um, and in the mid-19th century, they went on a quest uh, to try to find the female messiah. And they thought that she was going to be found where the East meets the West. Um, so they thought maybe in Egypt. Um, and they spoke of their projects in these kind of deeply romantic terms um, they of a kind of feminine, carnal East meeting a masculine, rational, scientific West. Um, and they, so they set off uh, to Egypt, um, but they were also engineers, um, and they were deeply invested in building a canal um, that would connect the East with the West. Um, and so their quest was a total failure. They they never found the female messiah anywhere, um, but they did initiate the first stages of what became the Suez Canal. Um, so I kind of love this story because, like, these these currents of apotheosis are are even rooted in the like very mundane infrastructure of the modern world um but you know what happened to the to the female messiah where is she why are there not more more goddesses or female gods um i think part of it is that you know you have to look at who who's writing down these stories you know uh, who are the myth makers and and so often they're you know European Christian sailors or soldiers or missionaries, and their picture of god is is as a male as God the Father um, and so the idea that a woman might be mistaken for a god is just you know nonsensical because women don't look like gods. Um, And so there's that. um, And I think there's also a way in which modern ideas of masculinity have deeply drawn upon ideas of divinity, you know, to create, create, there's actually um, an interesting story that I tell in my book about the Brigadier General John Nicholson, um, who was an Irishman who was a commander in the British Raj um, in India, and this religion coalesced around him called the Nicolsanis, um, who worshipped him, even though he was this kind of incredibly violent, wrathful god. Um, but Nicholson became this this great hero in generations of literature for young schoolboys. So. 
his story gets and how of how he was worshipped as a god in India um, actually made it into the first edition of the Boy Scout manual. Um, there was a play for boys to act out where you know you're kind you kind of play like being this this accidental god, uh, and then it gets repeated in Kipling um, and in all these kind of classics of of literature for young boys which which teaches you how to be a man in the world so you know that kind there's this kind of idea of like how should a man be in the world well you know he should act like someone who might get mistaken for a god um and so so divinity you know in in the modern age has just become more and more masculine i would say I've been speaking with Anna Della Subin, author of Accidental Gods on Men Unwittingly Turned Divine. Anna, thank you so much for this interesting conversation today. I really enjoyed it. Oh, thank you. It's been wonderful speaking with you. Still to come, we'll be back with Professor Charles Stang. We'll talk about searching for divinity not outside of ourselves, but within. What does it mean to experience a divine double? Also, make sure to connect with us on Facebook, where you can share your thoughts on today's show by going to kcrw.com slash lifeexamined, or by searching in Facebook for KCRW Life Examined. And as we come up on the two-year anniversary of Life Examined, we're trying to get to 200 ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts, and we're just about 10 shy of getting there, and we would love your support. We'll be back after this short break. Introducing the KCRW Donation Car, designed to be recycled. This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car, already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com cars. I'm Jonathan Bastian, back with Life Examined on KCRW. We just heard Anna Della Subin, author of Accidental Gods, on men unwittingly turned divine, explain the culture, history, and myths that allowed mankind to believe that divinity can inhabit a human form. But what if divinity is not something we bestow upon others, but rather find within ourselves? What if you found out that you were not entirely you, but rather one half of a whole, that you had, in other words, a divine double? Professor Charles Stang, director for the Center for the Study of World Religions at Harvard University and the author of The Divine Double, explains the popularity of the divine twin in early Greek and Christian texts and how it survived in various forms throughout the centuries. Charles Stang, welcome to Life Examined. It's a pleasure to be here, Jonathan. Thank you. We're exploring this idea of what it means to actually see a divine aspect within oneself. Um, and versus just thinking of it as something outside of us. Where, where do you see this idea coming from? Where does it first emerge? Well, the truth is, Jonathan, I don't know where it first emerges. I know I pick up the tracks um, in antiquity before Christianity in the Greek tradition. Hmm. And I see it at work in the philosopher Plato, uh, especially. I see it emerging in early Christianity. And I see it really spiking in the second and third centuries of our common era. And then this idea, which is prevalent across religions and philosophies in those maybe two, 300 years, begins to fade from view. Mm. And one question we have might wanna explore is why does it fade from view? Yeah. Let's start with Plato. What what did the some of these Greek philosophers have to say about this this divine aspect? Well, Plato famously says in a dialogue called the Theaetetus, he says that humans should become as much like God as possible. That's the goal of human existence. So, in Plato, you find these famous ascent ascent narratives where he describes humans climbing up or ascending to this realm of ultimate reality where they are, uh, where, they, uh, where they've essentially divinized or made divine. But there are also these 
moments in Plato where he says it's not the divine is not just exterior to us that, to which you need to ascend, but that there's a kind of kernel of it already in you. And usually he will identify that kernel with something in he will call in Greek the noose, which is a hard word to translate. It's often translated as intellect or mind, but it really fails to capture what this word means for Plato and the other Greek philosophers. It's, it's something closer to a kind of immediate intuitive knowledge of the eternal forms. That noose is the kind of divine kernel or core of the human being. And there was uh, a great sense of importance, I take it, placed on this, as if this was something we could develop or allow to flower within us. Absolutely. And it needs to be differentiated from something like logic or dialectical reasoning. It's not that kind of thinking. It's a different, as I said, more of an intuitive um, connection to the divine. But you could cultivate this noose uh, through contemplation. Or the, as the tradition developed, it even imagined that this noose in us had a kind of counterpart, a kind of double that might visit us hmm. to awaken our own, um, awaken us to the divinity of our own noose. Uh, and that's what was really the sort of launching point for the book I wrote, which tried to explore how that idea of the divine double finds expression not only in Greek philosophers like Plato and and uh, his readers, but in early Christianity and other religions and philosophies of the ancient Mediterranean. Yeah. Does this this kernel or this noose, is the idea that it exists in in every person, in all of us? In most of the traditions that I covered, the answer seems to be yes, that at least potentially it is in every human being, uh, but that few activate it mm. or few are visited and so activated. Uh, and the, each of these traditions has different ways of handling what that kind of implicit um, elitism might mean. Um, but there's one tradition that I surveyed where it seems that only the founder of this religion uh, was thought to be, <laughs> to have a divine noose and maybe not the rest of us. But by and large, yes, it seems to be a kind of universal account of humanity. You looked at this really closely in early Christian thought, and there's some really fascinating um, characters in this. Um, in texts, the Gospel of Thomas being one, talk about some of where you see this in that tradition. Yes, you're, in early Christianity, it seems to be clearest in uh, a tradition we've come to call the Thomas tradition, and it, that just names a number of texts that have happened to survive from antiquity of, associated with this one apostle, Thomas. And the apostle Thomas is a curious figure in the Gospels because he's a, a minor character um, in the three synoptic gospels, but then in the gospel of John, he emerges as a really interesting character. And the gospel of John makes a point of saying that the apostle Thomas was called twin Didymus in Greek. This has been a, something of a riddle because the very name Thomas in Aramaic also means twin. So naturally people, early Christians and modern interpreters both wanna know what does it mean to say that an apostle was twin? Who's twin? What kind of twin? And it appears from the evidence we have that some early Christians thought that this apostle was, one, was Jesus's twin, the twin of Jesus. But again, in what possible sense could that be? And what appears to be the case is that um, these early Christian texts associate this apostle with uh, one of Jesus's brothers named Judas, not Judas the Iscariot, but uh, another Judas, common name. So uh, that may be a, a scandal for some of your listeners to know mm -hmm. that the uh, 
Gospels make mention of Jesus's brothers and sisters casually, um, which was a challenge to the subsequent doctrine of the perpetual virginity of Mary. But we'll leave that for another episode. In any case, the point is, they identified this one brother of Jesus, Judas, as Jesus's twin, but not his literal twin brother, but a brother with whom he had a special relationship. And these texts imagine that Thomas, the twin, is kind of like the stand-in for all believers. He's the one who is close to Jesus in the way that each one of us could and should be, that we each could become Jesus's twin. Now, what does that mean? If you look at this apocryphal gospel called the Gospel of Thomas, which is just a, a series of sayings of Jesus, some of which are familiar to us from the canonical gospels, some of which are entirely new, Jesus explains to Thomas that Jesus is the living light in everyone, in every single human being. He lives in everyone. And that if you can awaken this living Jesus or come to see the, uh, that Jesus is always already in you, then you become, like Thomas, a twin of Jesus. And so you're kind of paired with him in some way. So that's where you find it most dramatically in the early Christian literature. And there's other texts associated with Thomas that sort of play this out uh, in very um, entertaining ways. But the Gospel of Thomas is kind of the ground zero for this early Christian theology of twinning. If we expand out and think about this idea of non-duality, or in this case, duality or, or twinning, where, where else would we see this in other religious traditions? Well, it continues to have a very vibrant history within Greek philosophical traditions that continue on in the um, early centuries of the Common Era. So they, they are contemporaneous with the rise of Christianity. So I survey some of that in this book. Often this tradition is called Neoplatonism. It's kind of a renaissance of Platonic speculation. But it also appears in a new religious movement I referred to earlier, but not by name. Um, it goes by the name of Manichaeism. This is a religion that very few people know of today, although we're often, many people are familiar with the adjective Manichaean. Hmm. Um, we usually use it to talk about radically dualistic worldviews. Um, but Manichaeism was a religion that emerged in the third century in Mesopotamia by uh, around a figure, a self-styled prophet by the name of Mani. And he thought of himself as the kind of culmination of uh, a number of previous religions, including Zoroastrianism, Buddhism, and Christianity. And he takes this idea of twinning and really runs with it. And in fact, we have this fragmentary text that talks about Mani's early life. And he narrates in pretty powerful language how he was visited once when he was 12 years old and once when he was 24 years old, if I'm not mistaken. He was visited by a figure that he calls in Greek the Sitsikos or his twin or companion who looked like his mirror image. And it's that figure's visitation that embarks, that, that sets Mani on his prophetic course and essentially the founding of a new religion. And I should just add that that new religion spread from Mesopotamia far as far west as um, Morocco mm -hmm. and as far east as China and survived down to, I believe the 17th century was the last Manichaean community in China. I may have that century wrong. Um, it, so the Manich Manichaeans have the distinction of being the only quote-unquote world religion that went extinct. How do you think this idea of, of a, a divine twin 
or this internal divine aspect. What's the beauty of this in terms of how we can use this mm -hmm. concept? Once you put on these spectacles and start looking for what I call the divine double, you will begin to see it everywhere. It's not confined to the traditions that I cover in my book. Um, I've had friends and colleagues tell me that there's a kind of an analogous phenomenon in things that are very far flung from the ancient Mediterranean. So what I mean by that is, it may be that what we have here is something like a, um, a kind of perennial anthropology. What I mean by that is, what we have is a particular model of what it means to be a human or an experience of what it means to be a human in which one is convinced that one has a divine aspect. One might even have a profound experience of it. One might even experience that divine aspect or divine double as visiting you. I think this is actually a fairly common human experience. And what I did is drilled down into a particular tradition or set of traditions that really tried to put language to that experience. Hmm. I think the experience continues to this day. And just as those ancient traditions were drawing on the best science, philosophy, and religion to give voice to that experience, so too today, uh, people are, are doing so. And so the divine double will very likely appear in a different guise. Um, I've found that a number of people have written me wanting to tell me about their own peculiar experiences of the divine double. Yeah. Can you, can, I, can you share some of those? Because I, <laughs> I, or, or perhaps if not those, how one would put words to an experience like this? Because I, I, I sense people listening may, may have had their own, but I, I'm just curious as to how we begin to even frame something like that. Well, here's one that will be controversial. Um, the philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche uh, said that on a walk around Lake Silva Plana uh, in Switzerland, he was once which he described as 6,000 feet above good and evil. He is said to have been visited by the prophet Zarathustra, hmm. Zoaster. Now, most people take this to mean that Nietzsche had a really good idea on a walk. <laughs> mm -hmm. that he, oh, he had this fantastic idea that he would write under the pseudonym of Zoroaster, Zarathustra. And so he did the famous book, Thus Spoke Zarathustra. I wonder whether that, we shouldn't take that a little bit more literally, certainly take it more seriously. Was Nietzsche visited by his divine double? What does that mean? Did he have a profound experience of, a, of some encounter with a person that was both him and not him? And that then he, he, he then went on to negotiate that relationship over the course of his literary career, figuring out who Zarathustra was to him. Was he speaking in his own voice or Zarathustra's or both? I'd love any more examples because I feel that there is this, this rich tradition of, of one almost channeling another voice in a sense. That's right. That's exactly right, Jonathan. So the most famous ancient example, of course, is Socrates. This is, you can trace it all back to Socrates because Socrates in, the, in Plato's Apology explains to the Athenians who have gathered to pass judgment on him that he has since childhood experienced the visitation of something he calls the daimonion, um, the, which derives from the word daimon, which, from whence we get the word demon. But a daimon is a kind of spirit in Greek and a, sort of, a kind of intermediary divine being. And Socrates explains how this daimonion or daimon has visited him to guide him throughout life. It's never made an appearance. It doesn't show itself. It manifests as a voice in his head that says no. Hmm. And, um, and so, so Socrates is the first to confess 
if I should say Socrates is the first in the Greek philosophical tradition to confess to this divine double. And much of the Platonic tradition, their reflection on the divine double is trying to work out what this figure was for Socrates and what implications that has for the rest of us. Is it just something that Socrates enjoyed? Or back to your earlier question is, do we all have a daimon? Do we all have a guardian spirit? And if so, what claims might that guardian spirit make on our lives? Doesn't some of this also bring up this question of a prophet versus a madman or <laughs> a, a schizophrenic versus somebody who is truly channeling something otherworldly? It's as if we don't really know what to do with this when we come across it in, in the modern world. We call it brilliance or a mental disorder. Do you know what I'm saying? Absolutely. Yeah, this is a this is. Uh, this is a, there's a very lively debate uh, around this. When does an ecstatic state uh, verge into the psychotic? Um, I'm in no position, of course, to to make this to make some determination in any case as to whether someone is experiencing their divine double uh, or whether they are experiencing a psychotic break. Mm. Um, but certainly many of the mystics <laughs> from the centuries I spend most of my time studying appeared to their contemporaries as madmen. And in fact, they even acknowledge that and embrace it because um, some of them try to get out in front of that charge and say, that this is madness. Yes, it's divine madness. I am mad, but I'm mad because I'm in contact with God. And when when one is united to God or infused with God or however you want to put it, um, one can't remain sober and sane like the rest of us. I've been speaking with Charles Stang, professor of early Christian thoughts at Harvard University. I really appreciate the time. Thank you so much. Thank you, Jonathan. It's a pleasure. Well, that's all we got for this week. The producer of our show is Andrea Brody. Stay connected to us by checking out our Facebook group. There you can ask questions, interact with other members, and get an inside look into how we make the program. You can find it at kcrw.com slash lifeexamined or by searching in Facebook for KCRW Life Examined. We're also trying to get to 200 ratings and reviews as we celebrate our two-year anniversary on Life Examined. So if you listen on Apple Podcasts, it only takes a moment, and we really appreciate your support. I'm Jonathan Bastian. Have a wonderful day. We'll see you next week.